0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, hail Mary, full of praise Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou, among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. The Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, Glory and and at the and of our death. and Oh, bit of review. Last time, I stressed the distinction between the thing we're talking about and how we describe it. And I applied that distinction to biblical text in Philippians 2, verses 6 and following. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not cling to being equal to God, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Okay? And being found in the likeness of man, he became obedient unto death. You know, you all know the text. Now, the thing we're talking about in that passage is hello, the person Jesus, and how we're describing him is first of all as being in the form of God, which means having the divine form or nature. And then we're describing him as uh, taking on the form of servant, which is human nature. I also raised the last time the question of how to describe Jesus in what he is, because it's twofold. The one answer was easy. He's a human being. That's a what. That's what something is, and that was what he was. Is not this the carpenter's son is not marrying his mother Are not his brothers and sisters here with us? That description was easy. But that description wasn't enough. I talked about the miracles which he did, the displays of divine authority as in the power to forgive sins, which is a divine variety, and the event at the Transfiguration when the human form seems to slip away and this underlying mystery shines out. Yes. Well, how to describe him as what he is in the other way? This answer was hard. It was correct to say he's gone. But this answer had to be reconciled with monotheism. And I showed you last time the path that the apostles took in overcoming (coughs) this difficulty. They could begin already with the prophecies in the Old Testament taking Proverbs 8, 22 and following as a prophecy where wisdom speaks and wisdom says God set me up at the beginning of his ways before all ages. I was with him when the heavens were made. I was there. When the earth was made, I was there. When the deep was dug out and filled with water, I was there. Yes? So, and wisdom also says I was like uh, a, a helper and like an action or at play always before him. I gave you a further description of the divine wisdom from the book of Wisdom, chapter 7 where we get a much more philosophical description where it says that wisdom is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his substance, and those words appear again at the very beginning of the Epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews one, verse two. And express image, of his express image of his substance. All right. Now. I explained the connection between calling him God's wisdom and the language in the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Logos. The Logos with God and the Logos was God. Right? And I pointed out that the meaning of Logos is not word in the ordinary sense of a pronounced sound because the term for that in Greek is rhema not logos logos is rather a rational account or an explanation now giving a rational account of something is giving the wisdom about it so calling Christ the logos of the father is equivalent to calling him the wisdom of the father Finally, last time, I showed how to get from the concept of a word slash wisdom of God to the concept of a son of God. Now this derivation is laid out for you in much more detail in the derivation that our friend Santino has been talking about and which I recommend to the braver part. heart. <laughs> but in a nutshell, the path of derivation goes like this. I want you to think of a being whose whole being is his act of understanding. Now that's not true of you. I exist as a general rule without understanding much of anything. My being is not my act of understanding. But imagine a being whose very being, whose existing, is the same act as his act of understanding. All right. Now imagine that that being understands himself. He performs a reflexive act of understanding. That being understands his own understanding. All right. Now, when you understand something, what arises in you is a concept of the thing understood. If I set out to understand water, and I don't know what it is, and I think about it and consult the chemists and whatnot, and I finally come up with an answer, what has arisen in me is a concept of the stuff in this bottle. I'm still waiting for it, by the way, to be transformed miraculously into vodka, but this miracle has not come through yet, so once again tonight, we are sipping water as we give this lecture. (laughs) Similarly, if I try to understand the act of understanding, which I don't usually think about, understanding is something I usually do without thinking about it when I do it. But I could I suppose focus on my own mind and try to understand the very act of understanding. Now if I succeeded in understanding my own act of understanding the concept that would be arising in me would be a perfect likeness of that act of understanding. Because this is the function of the concepts that arise in the mind. How does a thought in my mind amount to knowledge of this aqueous substance? How does it happen? It only happens because the concept in my mind is some kind of likeness of that substance, it articulates what it is. It's an image of it, an intellectual image of it. Similarly, if I were to understand my own act of understanding, a concept would arise in me which would be a perfect likeness of my own act of understanding. And if my act of understanding were the same thing as my very being, then the concept that would arise in me would be a likeness of my own being. Now that concept is the divine wisdom. It is that through which God understands himself and everything else. He understands himself through a concept of himself, which is his wisdom. And that wisdom is a perfect likeness of himself. Now, if I were to produce a perfect likeness of myself, it would be the son. Now, why aren't my concepts my children? Even though we call them, uh, uh, I don't know, mental offspring maybe or something. A brainchild. Brainchild, brainchild. Why? Why? our concepts literally our children? Again, the answer is because our act of thinking or understanding is not the same as our act of being. Our thinking is accidental to us. Whether we're thinking about something is how we are at a given moment. It's changeable. What we are is something else. Yes? But if these two were to come together, if thinking of this or understanding this were identity my very being, my concept would be a perfect likeness of me in what I am. (laughs) That's a sign. This is where we left it last time. How to get from the concept of Jesus as the word-slash-wisdom of God to the concept of Jesus as the Son of God. Now, needless to say, the description of Jesus as Son of God was directly revealed in its own right. As we saw last time, Jesus called himself the Son, in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son, that's me, except the Father. Yes. Likewise, in uh, St. Paul, you all remember Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth what? Yes. His Son. Born of a woman. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. And already in the book of Acts, St. Paul in Acts 11 had preached Jesus as Son of God. So this title was revealed in its own right. And at the beginning of John's Gospel in the prologue, We have it that no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. Yes. So, the concept of our Lord as Son was already in place. All that had to be done by the Apostles was reconciled the revelation of Jesus as Word and wisdom with the revelation of Him as Son of God. Now you might think, wasn't that a kind of a, I don't know, wasn't that a kind of labor-intensive way for the revealing God to about things? Why didn't he just reveal Jesus as the Son and be done with it? The answer is because pagan mythology was full of divine children. And those mythologies gave the wrong impression altogether. The right way to understand Jesus as Son of God because he's Word and Wisdom of God was achieved already by the year 150 when we have uh, Justin Martyr writing from Rome. And I'm going to read to you a passage from chapter 10 of his first apology. Justin Martyr wrote two apologies and also a dialogue with a Jewish fellow named Trypho. This is from the first apology, chapter 10. Listen to this. I have sufficiently proved, therefore, that we are not atheists. We, who adore the God without beginning, eternal, invisible, invulnerable, incomprehensible, uncontainable, who can be reached only by intelligence and by reason, who is surrounded by an indescribable light, beauty, spirit, and power, who has made, who has created, who governs the universe through his word. Dot, dot, dot. We also admit the Son of God. And don't tell me that it's ridiculous that God should have a son. For we do not conceive God the Father and God the Son after the fashion of the poets. Rather, the Son of God is the word of the Father in idea and in power. Since of him and through him all things have been made, the Father and the Son being but one. Now I'm going to go on with that quotation in just a minute, after I fill in a word or two of background. By the poets, Justin Martyr means folks like Homer and Hesiod. Now everybody knows about Homer, right? Author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. So let me ask you about Hesiod. H E S I O D, whose work was also read and was, you know, the common stock of elementary and rhetorical education in the ancient world. Does anybody know what Hesiod wrote? The Theogony? Who said that? (laughs) 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 Yes! The Theogony. (laughs) Namely, the coming to be of the gods, <laughs> and it's all about the generation of the gods. How originally there's a kind of chaos, and then heaven separates itself from from earth, and the heaven is Uramos and the earth is Gaia, and those two somehow, um, well, uh, have uh, have cosmic. Uh, Congress, and the result of that is an offspring. So they beget Saturn, and Saturn begets Zeus. I don't know quite where Hera came from, but she's in the genealogy there somewhere. So you have gods begetting gods. Yes? And of course, in this pagan, polytheistic system, the sons and children of the gods, descended from the gods, are other Gods from their ancestors, right? So, Father God and Son God make two gods. And if you get grandson in there, you get three gods, and so on and so on. And then, of course, there are sisters and cousins and brothers and aunts. Gods, so many gods. Results, all right? Now, this was the standard picture in the Greek and Roman myths. Now let me ask you this, do you think Christianity, we're talking about the first century in which it was preached, do you think Christianity had any attraction to the people who still believed in those myths? No. No is correct, it did not. Christianity rather appealed to educated people educated people were looking for a thinking man's God. They understood that a thinking man's God could not be an eternally gorgeous body living on top of Mount Olympus. Okay. The Greek divinities are immortal beefcake and cheesecake. They're like Hollywood celebrities only on Olympus instead of Hollywood <laughs> eternally gorgeous that's not a thinking man's divinity a thinking man's divinity has got to be not just immortal but eternal not just powerful but all powerful spiritual yes capable of being the first cause explaining everything else Zeus never pretended to be the first cause, explaining everything else. Zeus had been caused by his father and son. Who he slew, by the way. Yes. Alright. So the thinking people in Greece and in Rome would be turned off by saying, we believe in the God of the Jewish Bible, but here's our news for you, he has a son. So right away, Justin Martyr has to explain that. We don't mean it in the sense of the poets. Rather, the Son of God is the word of the Father, in idea and in power. Which brings me to another point of review. Remember last time I distinguished uh, two ways of talking about word, (coughs) inner word, which is the mental word, and spoken word. Here, Justin Martyr is plainly talking about the inner or mental word, which is the concept, in idea and in power. Since of him and through him all things have been made, the Father and the Son being one. The Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son by the unity and power of the Spirit. I'm reading Justin Martyr again. The Son of God is the intelligence and the word of the Father. And if in your high wisdom you wish to know what the Son means, I'll tell you briefly. He was the offspring of the Father, not in the sense that he was produced. beginning, being an eternal intelligence, had his word with him, since he is eternally intelligent. I made this point before. Once you understand the concept of the wisdom of God, you right away get the point it can't have been created. If wisdom of God was a creature of God, then before he blundered into making that creature, he was what? Fool. So the wisdom of God has to be co-eternal with God. That's what Justin is saying. He was the offspring of the Father, not in the sense that he was produced. Because God, from the beginning, being an in eternal intelligence, had his word with him, since he is eternally intelligent. But in order that in all material things... There might be idea and energy among them coming from without. This is what the Holy Spirit, the prophetic spirit teaches. The Lord created me at the beginning of His ways in the accomplishment of His works. You see how Justin Martyr understands the revealed data. Wisdom of God on the one hand, Logos, Son of God on the other, and he understands how to put them together in a concept that overcomes pagan, misconstrues, and the uh, uh, misunderstandings that arise in the mind of thought, in the minds of false people. Now then, there is just one little bit of a problem in this so far beautiful synthesis, which Justin Martyr has made. I haven't read it yet. So don't try to reflect back on what I read. Everything I read was is fine so far. But coming up, there is a problem. Here it is. Second Apology chapter 6. Justin said, His son, who alone is properly to be called Son, come. The word who, before all creatures, was with him, and was begotten when, at the beginning, the Father made and ordained all things. Was the Son begotten before all things? Or was the Son begotten when God made all things? There's something dubious here. And the right way to understand it is this. Justin Marner has in mind that distinction between word in the sense of the inner word, and word in the sense of the spoken word. Right? From all eternity, the Logos has been with the Father as his inner word. And is of the very substance of the Father. Yes? But at creation, what does the Father do? He speaks the word. God spoke, let there be light and there was light. Justin thinks of that speech act as being the moment when the Son came out of the bosom of the Father. The Word, I should say, came out of the bosom of the Father and became born, became a Son. Now, this is wrong. Cool. This is wrong. Cool. All right. But watch. It's not as wrong as one could. It is wrong. But it's not as wrong as one can fear. Look at this. Justin is distinguishing. Oh, here it is on here already the highly efficient Sabatino got this on the portal. Um, Justin is distinguishing two states of the being of the divine word. An eternal state in which the word is In the bosom of the Father, one in being and substance with the Father. And then an emerged state in which the Son is spoken forth. At that point, he becomes a Son. Justin identifies the birth of the Son with the utterance of the Word. The word has been forever in God's mind. But at a certain point, he's spoken forth. And once spoken forth, he becomes God's son. Now, let's make sure we all know that this is wrong. This is bad theology. But let's not blame Justin too much. After all, he's writing in 150 AD. And you have better than a 1,000 years of theology on him. He was never, you know, Justin Martyr was a private teacher. He wasn't an official catechist of the Diocese of Rome. He wasn't a bishop. He wasn't even a priest. Private expert. You you hire some guy who hangs out of a shingle as a theologian, and he comes and gives you a lecture, you never know what you're going to get. Ditto for you. As a teacher of mine once said, never believe theologians. (laughs) (laughs) Believe the church. Never believe theologians. Well, anyway, in this case, Justin Martyr was making a mistake. We know that the Word is every bit as eternal as Son as He is as Word. We know that His generation or beginning from the Father is his eternal conception as the inner word, but Justin hadn't thought that through. So he thought that the word, although already existing, became a son at the moment he was spoken. Now, the speaking is prior to creation. Because the speaking brings creation into being. And all time is inside creation. Yes. So we can say that the sun is before all time. The word is son before all time. He's son from the beginning. <clears throat> before time. But coinciding with creation. That's when he spoke. Alright? Now this idea that we should identify the eternal Son and Word of God with the speech act at creation has completely gone out of our theology. If I hadn't brought it up tonight, would you have ever thought of it? I hope not. <laughs> not many people would think of that anymore. Alright? Alright? But remember, back in these early days, everything that you could get out of the Scriptures, from any part of the Scriptures, was up in the air and being discussed. And this was one way to put the data together. It's not a way which we would now accept. But it was a way that made sense to Justin Martyr and to a great many other people, by the way, in this period. Do you mind if I shed this layer of my uh, apparel here? So, I am willing. It wasn't only Justin Hart who made this particular mistake I'm talking about. You can find the same idea in Tertullian. You can find it in other apostolic fathers the one early writer who was absolutely free of this mistake is Euronism. Absolutely free of it. And then in the next century, um, our friends in uh, Alexandria are free of it. Well, nevertheless, a lot of people had made this mistake. And once it was made, there was bound to be a certain amount of trouble. (coughs) I need to tell you about a heresy which arose about a hundred years after the time of Justin Martin. This is the heresy of a chap named Paul of Samosata. S-A-M-O- S-A-T-A Samosata sounds like a Japanese (laughs) (laughs) Samosata was actually a town in Syria where he came from and his name was Paul and around the year 260 AD he is the bishop in Antioch okay which was a fine town in those days, a very prominent town. And he had a novel idea of how to explain the truth. He says, look, when it comes to talking about God, there is just the Father. The Word of God Mm -hmm. whom others call the Son. Paul of Samosata said was not a Son, but a commandment. The Word of God was a commandment. God ordained that through this commandment all of his will would be accomplished. Now this commandment was very special. This commandment actually took flesh. Yes. It took flesh and became a human being. So if you want to ask the what question, what is Jesus, the answer is very simple. He's a human being, that's all. Okay. Behind the human being, there's the commandment of God, all right. But the commandment was fulfilled, it took flesh as a human being. All right, isn't this interesting? Then Paul, Samosata, asked himself what to do with the Holy Spirit. He said, Oh, the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the grace in the souls of the apostles. So you've got God the Father, you've got the human being Jesus, and you've got the grace in souls, especially in the souls of the apostles. God, a human being, grace. And that is the Trinity. Said Paul of Samosata, Bishop of Antioch, about the year 260 AD. Well. Did he explicitly then deny the divinity of the Word? Well, he was a very clever fellow deny the divinity of the word, he would say, never crossed my mind. The word is spoken by the Father. Of course it's a divine word. But it comes only in the human form? Yeah. Yeah. Now, needless to say, the bishops of the region did not take long in recognizing that this was a novel doctrine, untraditional, unheard of, they summoned the local council, and they condemned him. They condemned him for denying that the Son and the Holy Spirit are subsisting realities. Now, they condemned him for saying that the word of God does not have its own substance. That's what they condemned him for. Paul of Samahosata had said that the word exists just to the extent that he is uttered by the Father. But now, Let's get to the bottom of Paul of Samosata's mistake. How did he understand the talk of the word of God? Answer, he said that the word is not a substance, but a speech act, <clears throat> a speech act of God. Okay. Let's talk about somebody. Let's talk about George. And let's have the sentence George says hello. (coughs) The subject of the sentence is George. He's the thing we're talking about, right? Yeah. Is he a substance? Yes. Sure. Now what about his act of saying hello? Is that a substance? No, it's accidental. Yes. We would call it an action. And the philosophers would say that our actions are for the most part, at any rate, accidental to us. Anyway, an action isn't a substance. Now do you see what Paul of Samosata meant by saying the word of God is not a substance—it's just a speech action. All right, he was taking the word exclusively as okay. taking that clue from Genesis one, putting it together in the wrong way leaving out the other half of what even Justin Martyr had understood and coming up with a very dangerous doctrine. That the word is not a substantial being but just a speech act. And somehow this speech act magically took flesh. Now, I want to ask you this question, since you have agreed with me so far that a speech act is not a substance in its own right. If we have George saying hello, how many substances do we have? One. One. Is there any substance to the speech act? Not exactly, but you can say there's a substance behind it Namely, the speaker. Right? Hello? To express this idea, Paul of Santa said that the Word is the same substance as the Father. Homo. The same. Usia, Substance. Okay? Take the noun usia and turn it into an adjective, make it homo, homo usios, and there you have the word. Same in substance. It was used by Paul of Samosata to express his heresy, mm-hmm. and the bishops convoking that council in Antioch in 260. Said, ah, 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 bad doctrine, bad word, out with it. By the way, they deposed him. Paul of was deposed from his see. I can think of a few more recent prelates <laughs> to whom that fate would be deserved. <laughs> <To> <laughs> but anyway, in the good old days, they got rid of bad apples. Send packing. But there was this aftermath of the event. Namely, that the word homoousios had a bad taste in the ecclesiastical mouth. It had been used to say that there, the word doesn't have a substance of its own. There's only the substance of the speaker behind it. Does everybody see it? There it was. Now, how am I doing on time? I am doing truly wretched. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't start we, <laughs> we started at seven forty, Doctor Martin. Are you good to I... seven yeah, yeah, forty? Eight forty. Still, time will not <laughs> permit me <laughs> to talk about the two important heresies that intervened between the time of Paul of Sambasata out there in Antioch and the time of Arius. I am going to mention them, and then I'm going to read to you a wonderful document that shows how they were overcome. The two heresies that intervened were adoptionism and Sabellianism. Adoptionism was the heresy that Jesus was originally just a human being. Okay? Somehow, because he behaved himself, because he kept God's commandments, he was promoted. <laughs> promoted to divine status. Adoptionism was a heresy that didn't stand a chance. It was very easily and very quickly condemned. The heresy of Sibelius, on the other hand, was difficult well he's a man S-A-B-E-L-L-I-U-S and his heresy has several names one of which is Ism. okay and it brought up in a very sharp way uh, what you are probably what you probably have in the back of your minds is a problem as well. Sibelius said, look, either there's one God or confounded there are three. Now, there's supposed to be exactly one God. Fine. Then don't tell me that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and that the Father is not the Son, and that the Son is not the Holy Spirit, says Sibelius. Don't tell me that! If they're all three God, and all three are God, and the one is not the other, then there are three gods. That's tritheism. Says Sibelius. And it's got to be wrong. solution. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three names for the same thing. <laughs> three names for the same thing. Okay. When we describe that one thing as it was from eternity, we call it the Father. Then that one thing came down and took flesh in the womb of the Virgin. As so doing, we call him it, the son. Now that he's risen from the dead, he comes and indwells souls. As doing that, we call him it, the Holy Spirit. Three names for the same thing. Now, everybody could see that the Sibelian position was wrong. It did not allow for any real distinction between the father and the son as divine persons hence hence it led to the conclusion which is obviously against the scriptures that the one who suffered on the cross was really the father the father in the flesh and hence, this heresy is also called patripassionism. The suffering of the Father. But the Father is not the one who became flesh. He is not the one who suffered on the cross. That was the Son and not the Father. The Father did not become flesh, the Son did. Yes? So everybody could see that Sibelianism was wrong. It had to be wrong. Yeah? But how get over the fundamental problem? How preserve monotheism without turning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into three names for the same thing? How do you do that? Okay? Now, I can't give you the full answer that. That's not relevant to my topic, but I can use a suggestion. Okay. And then we're going to move on to Arius and to uh, the Council of Nicaea, which I'm supposed to get to. <laughs> I want you to think of substantial sameness with relational distinction. Think of that. Substantial sameness with relational distinction. Okay? Having trouble with that? It's too abstract, isn't it? So let me give you an example from Scripture. Okay? Why did the author of the epistle to the Hebrews? so much prize that saying about God's wisdom from the book of wisdom chapter 7 brightness of the divine glory why did he prize that so much because look I want you to think of light and it's brightness now a light and it's brightness are relationally distinct The brightness is of the light. There is a relation between the one is of or from the other. But they are substantially the same. The brightness is light. That's why in the creed to this day it says, Lumen de Lumine, light from light. Light from light is relationally distinct but the same in substance. And uh, other scriptural uh, examples of the same idea can be given. The express image of his substance conveys something of the same idea, but it takes a little bit longer to explain. I'm going to skip it over. Yes, I'm going to come to the end of this section before I get to Arius himself and read you a creed which was written after the Sabellian heresy was overcome. This creed dates to around 295 AD. It is from the pen of St. Gregory the Wonderworker. St. Gregory Thalmotourgos, who was a bishop in Asia Minor. And legend had that this creed was dictated to him in a vision by the Blessed Virgin. And it's so good that I am tempted to believe the legend, hook, line, and sinker. Listen to this marvelous statement by St. Gregory Torbos, The year is 295. One and only one God. Father of the living word. Father of the subsisting wisdom. Of the power. Of the eternal impress. Who has perfectly begotten a perfect son. Just one Lord. Unique from the unique. God from God imprint and image of the divinity, active word, wisdom who upholds the whole universe and power who has made all things, true Son of the true Father, invisible from the invisible, incorruptible from the incorruptible, immortal from the immortal, eternal from the eternal, and one and only one Holy Spirit. Having his existence from God and having appeared through the Son. Image of the Son. Perfect from the perfect. Life, source of all the living. Holiness who confers sanctification. In whom God the Father manifests himself. God the Father who is above all things and in all things. And in whom God the Son manifests himself. Who is shed upon all things. Perfect Trinity which is not divided, which is not differentiated in glory, eternity, and kingship. So in the Trinity there is nothing created. There is nothing of the servile. There is nothing coming from without. Nothing that would have failed to exist beforehand and then came to be. For the Son has never been lacking to the Father nor the Spirit to the Son but one and the same Trinity has always abided without transformation or change. Period. Great stuff. Great stuff. Absolutely letter perfect. Orthodoxy. Beautifully expressed. And forcibly bringing out this point Life from like. Same substance, but a difference of relation. Okay. The one being from the other, but the substance being the same. Both indivisible, both uncreated, both invisible, both eternal. Same in substance, differing only in relation. Same vice okay it is important to have the creed of St. Gregory of sort of ringing in your ears when you come to study the life of Arius who represents a real model. I have an idea sort of a sociological idea why this novelty arose? Arius starts writing about 323. So about 25-30 years have gone by since the pre I just read. Arius was a priest in the archdiocese of Alexandria, a huge metropolitan diocese down there in Egypt. Arius was a simple priest. He had studied in uh, in uh, Asia Minor and Antioch, as a matter of fact. And he begins to write at the at the point when a huge change has been made in the fortunes of the church. Okay. That huge change is the conversion of the emperor. Constantine. Constantine prayed for a sign. Constantine was hoping to win the battle against his rivals, fought the battle of the Milvian Bridge outside of Rome. Prayed for a sign, saw a cross in the sky, promised that if he won the victory he would become a Christian, get baptized. Yes, the emperor becomes a Christian. What year was that? Athens? 321, 318, 321. 321. 312, I uh, so, uh, 312, 321. What's two digits man? It was just a couple of years earlier, alright, that the emperor had become a convert. Now ah, then. When the emperor becomes a convert, Roman society froze in the towel. They have been busy persecuting Christianity for 250 300 years, right? very busy indeed, and ferociously so in recent years. Now the emperor himself becomes a Christian. All of a sudden Christian is the socially acceptable thing to be. The leadership of society begins drifting into the church. And in comes Arius. A man who has a very rationalistic mind who says, all right, this Christian stuff is now going to be the imperial religion. Let's look at this stuff and straighten it out. Okay. And he sees the problem that Sibelius saw. Ah, oh, yeah, you're supposed to believe in one God, but you got a Father God, a Son God, a Holy Spirit God that's supposed to be distinct. Oh, Aye, what a mess. Saul so, says, Arius, look, I'm going to straighten this out. According to Arius, God alone is unbegotten, eternal, without origin, truly God. This absolute God cannot communicate his being. He cannot communicate his substance. Because a communication of divine substance would have to take place by division. Arius has an amoeba in his head. Right. Communication of divine substance would have to be by division. Mitosis—that <laughs> can't be. That's impossible because God's spiritual, simple, indivisible. And the only other way that God's being or substance could be communicated says He would would be by emanation, but that involves change, and God doesn't undergo change. So there can't be any communication of what God is to anything but God. So then, outside of God, there's nothing but creatures. Okay? Among creatures, guess who is top creature? The Word. Right. The first thing God made was the Word. Genesis one. He made the word, and through the word, he made everything else. Yeah, the word took flesh. The word redeemed us from our sins. All of that, but the word is a creature, top and best of creatures, and the Holy Spirit is just another creature. So you got one God and two very privileged creatures, and that's supposed to be the truth according to Arius. Now Arius was very good at propaganda. He even made up songs to be sung in taverns. Rhythmic and rhyming songs. He had a couple of slogans and his favorite slogan in Greek read like this. "Ain, pate pate uk aim. There was a then when he was not. <laughs> not exactly a time, but a logical moment, when he was not, before he was born. There was a then when he was not, which in Greek goes into a terrific rhyme, aim, pate, hot, uke, aim, pate, hot, uke, pate, hot, and so on. Alright, you can see how this goes into Baruch Giddies. <laughs> and Arian said, He was not before he was begun. He was not before he was born. So the Son of God is really just a creature. There was a time when he was not. Then he comes to be, and all the rest of the creatures come after him and through him. There he is. Aradism in a nutshell. And once again, it did not take people long to see that this was outrageous, completely hostile to tradition. And uh, indeed, the bishop of Alexandria, who was a guy named Dennis in those days, Dionysius, Do you know that Dennis is the same thing as Dionysius? It's the same name. Dionysius came into French and became Denis, and from that we got Dennis. So think of Dionysius the Menace. Anyway, this was a good Dionysius at Alexandria, quickly condemned Arius, and sacked him from the priesthood and so on. Uh, But uh, Arius had supporters. Okay, um, as I tell Arius was very clever. Uh, and um, he could disguise the full extent of his doctrine. He had supporters among bishops in the East who had also been students in uh, Antioch at the time he was a student there. And so he had supporters and there was, there was trouble. And the emperor, Constantine, said let's get this settled. He opened the imperial pocketbook to pay for all the bishops to come to a single place, Nicaea, and have a grand universal meeting there. That was the first ecumenical council. Before that, there had been no such thing as an imperial subsidy for bishops to travel. So you had local synods, but no worldwide synod. Okay. Well, the bishops all came to Nicaea. And if it was simply a question of condemning Arius, the the council would have been over in a day. That wasn't the hard part. The hard part was to figure out what to say positively. What to say positively. That would exclude Arius' equivocations and mistakes. Now you might think, well, just say, look, The Son is eternally from God. He's not from nothing, he's from God. And Arius and his friends at the council would say, what's going on with us? We're going to quarrel with that. All things are from God. God the Father from whom are all things? Hello? (laughs) That's not different. Yeah but, yeah, but the, 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 the word is, is, a, is, is a power of God. And the Arian bishops said, Yeah, so is the grasshopper. Oh, so is the locust. These are powers through which God works his will. And so after weeks of debate, trying to get over equivocation, the bishops of Nicaea could come up with no alternative. But this word, which had that history, what they had to say was, in order to express the fact that the eternal—I'm sorry—in order to express the fact that the Logos and Son of God is not a creature, they had to say that He is of the same substance, the same whatness. that is already in Scripture? Yes. Philippians 2, who was in the form of God, in the nature of God. The idea is already in Scripture, but the technical language wasn't in Scripture. So bringing it in represents an important step. To head off heresies, you somehow, you sometimes have to bring in new vocabulary that succeeds in being clear when all of the old vocabulary has been compromised by the cleverness of heretics. This word Arius and friends couldn't figure out how to compromise. And so it became the central word of the creed adopted at Nicaea. Now um Just a little bit over time about scripting. Here is the definitive document from Nicaea. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten. "...from the substance of the Father, God from God, Light from Light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in substance, homo usios, with the Father, through whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and took flesh and became man, he suffered and rose again on the third day, and ascended into heaven and will come to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's the Nicene Creed. Clearly, it's not the one we say in church. What we say in church is Constantinopolitan Creed. We'll get to that council soon. <laughs> but the Council of Nicaea knew how to give the emperor his money. As well. When you come together as an ecumenical council, you, just, you don't just make positive statements for all we believe. You also anathematize. <laughs> ecumenical councils that don't anathematize have not paid for their airfare. <laughs> Say no more. But here's what um, the Council of Nicaea said at the end of what I just read. Those who say there was a then when he was not and who say before he was born he didn't exist and that he came to be after not being or who say that he's of another substance hypostasis or usia those who say that he's created or changeable or Alterable, those who say these the Son of God is any of these things, then the Catholic Church anathematizes. There he is. Okay. The Emperor got his money's worth out of the Council of Nicaea. Thank you all very much. When we meet again, we're into the Council of Ephesus. Yes, ma'am. Did you just say the year and where exactly Nicaea is? The year was 325. And Nicaea is not on the map. Just off the map. It's, it's 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 over here. Okay, right, sitting right here at the mouth of the Black Sea is Constantinople. And Nicaea is in what's today Turkey, just a little bit south and east. I'm sorry, south and west of Constantinople. Where did the map is Antioch, now that is on your map, all right? Here's Turkey, bottom of Turkey, and here is the pink part is Syria, and Antioch is right on Syria's Mediterranean coast. Okay, it was a port city in those days, it's not anymore, the land is risen, still in. But it was a very important port city on the coast of modern Syria. Thank